I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast from Rain Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co-founder of Rain and chief collaborative officer, speaks with Dr. Fred Southwick, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine, and Dr. Bill Lang, an expert in public health responses to biological incidents about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in on this week's conversation. Fred and Bill, as always, uh, thanks for taking some time to provide updates, uh, not just in terms of uh, the waning COVID exposure, but also uh, around the new and the next and what people and enterprises should be thinking about. Uh, maybe we'll begin with just a uh, quick update to see if there's anything new on the data, need for additional boosters, You know, what, what is the current temperature here? Well, in fact, the New York Times last week or two weeks ago, actually, uh, stopped coverage of new international COVID data. So they said there's just people, most countries of the world have stopped reporting, have stopped um, even capturing data. So they said no, there's no point in continuing to cover it. They are still providing domestic data, as is the you know, many sources, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. And everything is is continuing to move uh, move towards zero. Um, you know, like anything else, when the numbers start getting small, you'll see just uh, small perturbations in the numbers that will go up or down. But but we're now at a point where we're essentially, I think, post-COVID as a very, as an active pandemic, epidemic, outbreak, what have you. Um, but now the analysis really begins in, in earnest. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. And I think that's what we'll be talking about here today. Yeah, I agree with Bill. One of the big problems is, as we've talked about before, is a lot of the testing is now the home antigen tests, and so they're never reported. So it's very, very difficult to know the exact numbers. The only way to look is at the, the number of hospitalizations, and that has gotten much, much lower. So I think the activity has has decreased. Bill, do you know? I didn't see what's the mortality uh, uh, due to COVID now per uh, per day. Um, we're un- well under 300. It's it's somewhere in the t- it, you know as I say small small changes in the numbers can go, but it's running between 225 and 275 per day. Yeah, because it was 400 for a very long time. 450. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's very encouraging too. All right. So uh, the New York Times uh, discontinuing coverage of uh, that issue. It's interesting. I'm still seeing a fair number of public service advertisements for the booster, uh, for what you can do if you're at risk and you do contract COVID. How should people be basically um, understanding those public service messages and what they should be doing as they move forward? 
Well, I can tell you that the one that I've seen a lot of is uh, if you have COVID, use Paxlovid. And uh, I think anybody uh, over the age of 50, uh, people with underlying medical conditions, it makes perfect sense. It's uh, There was a recent uh, study in Lancet Infectious Disease that was even better than the original, 89% efficacy with regards to reducing hospitalizations and death. So I think the message is, if you even if you're vaccinated, particularly in those that are over 70, uh, vaccine the vaccine isn't quite as protective. And while well, Paxlovid will prevent you from being hospitalized and dying. So I think that's the one I take home. The other uh, point I think that we have to keep in mind is very large gatherings. If there's one person in that group, uh, in that gathering that's got uh, COVID, they have the potential with the Omicron creating the aerosol, uh, they have the potential of infecting hundreds of hundreds of people. So I think if you're in a big gathering, I still would recommend wearing a mask under that circumstance. I don't know, Bill, your thoughts. Well, I think certainly anybody who is at risk based on age or, or comorbidities, um, that's what I tell tell people is to very much think about it. I don't apply that to airplanes because airplane, that's one of the first questions I always get because airplanes do have such good um, ventilation and I wouldn't apply it outdoors. But in a, um, you know, the highest risk is probably an environment like a, uh, a company with a large meeting room and cramming lots of people into it like like, like we, we used to. Um, in that kind of setting, if you have any risk factors, and yes, I, I would consider a mask. The, the other study that came out just last week in the Annals of Internal Medicine showed that uh, uh, Paxlovid decreases the incidence of long COVID by at least a quarter. Now, that, of course, is subject to this whole issue about how do you define long COVID. Um, but with a steady definition, it's still it's still showing a 25% reduction, 26% reduction. So um, I think that that's going to affect the CDC, the, the FDA's approval decision. Um, the FDA uh, advisory committee just voted almost unanimously uh, last week to approve prove COVID as a, as a approved medication. You know, we're still operating under the emergency use authorization, which requires that you be over 50 or have a significant risk factor for advancing to, to severe COVID. But with the demonstration that you just quoted, um, Fred, and the finding that it decreases the incidence of long COVID, I think that this will be it'll be approved for general use, especially because there's been almost no significant um, side effects noted. Yeah, I can actually speak to that. Uh, my um, our friends next door neighbors went to a NCAA basketball tournament in Orlando, and uh, they both got COVID. Unbeknownst to us, my wife drove our neighbor in their car at a time when she was infectious. And got uh, got and she and she has contracted COVID, and since I the incidence uh, within families is about eighty percent spread, I decided that I didn't want to take the chance. So I also am taking packs of it right now, and it there other than a little metallic taste, um, I've experienced no side effects, and and it looks like a very very safe uh, uh, medication. Uh, well, 
sounds as as always from both of you some very pragmatic and common sense advice. And the takeaway is um, COVID is still around, uh, but the issues around hospitalizations and uh, fatalities uh, have diminished, and there are appropriate steps that we can take, both uh, medically and also just in terms of um, deploying you know, a certain degree of caution in our interactions. Uh, let me switch because, um, and this from our network, uh, the issue of long COVID now seems to, I don't want to say be dominating the airwaves and, and print media, but there's a lot out there, uh, including people writing books about it and uh, very much, um, what I'll say, becoming uh, sort of the face of expertise on the airwaves, on social media, etc. What should the audience know about the term and the condition of long COVID? And maybe more importantly, Fred, as you alluded to in our conversations, how to prevent it? Well, I think one of the biggest problems with long COVID is defining it. Um, I, with As with many viral illnesses, there can be persistent symptoms of some kind, multiple kind, running everywhere from uh, mental health issues to respiratory issues to cardiac issues. This can apply to many different kinds of viruses. Um, and then, so how do you start defining it uniquely for, either uniquely for COVID or just uh, worthy of, of following? I think most, I think it's fair to say that most physicians would agree that there is a in some people, a prolonged syndrome of symptoms, uh, various symptoms. So I, don't, I guess I shouldn't call it a syndrome, uh, but it's not. It's not universal. It's probably not as high as the, in my, from everything I'm seeing, uh, not as high as the 35ish percent that CDC uh, notes. It's probably higher than the 3% that the British NHS notes. Um, but it all depends on how you define it. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill. I, I actually, this brings back memories of chronic fatigue syndrome. And for a while, it was thought to be uh, related to Epstein-Barr virus, uh, the mononucleosis virus. Uh, subsequently, uh, that proved not to be the case. And there have been years and years and years of investigation of chronic fatigue syndrome. And to date, there still isn't a clear uh, pathogenesis or, uh, or any kind of uh, effective treatment. And I worry that we're going to have the same problem to some extent with long COVID. There is a suggestion, uh, there is actually a, a, a randomized clinical control trial using metformin. Uh, diabetes drug that seems to reduce by about 30% uh, this this long COVID syndrome. And one possible thought recently is that it affects somehow the viral infection affects mitochondrial function and uh, metformin might uh, partly reverse that. So, you know, at this point, uh, we really don't know. We do know that uh, if you're vaccinated, there is a significant reduction in long COVID. And as, as Bill already mentioned, if you treat it with Paxlovid, there's also a significant reduction in these uh, prolonged 
uh, symptoms of fatigue and uh, headaches and mental status changes. And the problem is it's very, there are multiple systems seem to be involved and each person seems to be a little bit different. And so what are the um, types of symptoms that people should be on the lookout for uh, without you know, recognizing that there's, there may not be a unified definition around the term long COVID, but just in terms of people's recovery, uh, what should they be looking out for? Well, it, it is everything from fatigue is probably the most common. Um, and then fatigue can also extend into uh, extended feelings of tiredness after activity, even if you're not generally fatigued. Um, some people will have a prolonged uh, incidence of fevers or night sweats, um, respiratory symptoms, a, chron a chronic cough, perhaps chronic shortness of breath. Um, and then some people have some generalized neurologic symptoms, um, whether that's weakness or even some um, uh, strange feelings in their, their hands or legs. These are some of the things that are being reported. Most of these things, however, are subjective. And that's why the NHS has such a low number because they require objective findings, um, not subjective findings in order to call it a uh, true long COVID. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill. That, that's, that, that is the problem. A lot of uh, people get these symptoms from time to time and they may not be related to the virus, but if you have, have a virus, then you can blame it on it. So it, it's really a tricky, but I, there, I, I, I definitely believe it's a real syndrome. And one of my uh, good friends actually uh, really could not exercise for about two months without, uh, had to be very careful about the amount of exercise because he got so fatigued uh, that he would have to wait several days to work out. So and he had to gradually escalate his exercise tolerance. He's now over it, but it took about three and a half months. So I, I think there's really, there is something going on. And one of the thoughts is that the virus may uh, persist in these individuals or the dead virus may uh, stimulate the immune system. One of the big, other big problems is this doesn't seem to be any clear cytokine profile or, or any you know, biologic markers that can say, aha, this is long COVID. As uh, Bill said, it's really a subjective complaints. And that's always very, very difficult. Well, and, and if we go back to what we learned from chronic fatigue syndrome in the uh, probably through the through the 90s into the early 2000s, is one of the big issues that happens is that post-viral illness, people generally are tired. They're, they are easily fatigued. And so if you get into a vicious cycle of being tired so you don't do anything, as you're, just, as you, as you're sitting there, because you are physically tired because of the, the effects of the virus, you get deconditioned. And as you get deconditioned, that can affect your, your uh, outlook on life, um, can lead to depression, can lead to um, memory issues. And that's why one of the most important treatments for it is a, uh, a reasonable and steadily increasing program of exercise. Um, and this is may, maybe even where the, the metformin comes in as it affects the way your body more effectively uses energy. Um, but all of this is, is speculative. Well, you touched upon uh, memory issues, uh, Bill. 
So the, the thing that, at least uh, from our network, that people are focused on is the term brain fog, which I've heard, you know, various people who have been, you know, on even NPR radio speaking about. Is there any uh, particular aspect of the lingering side effects of COVID that people should be aware of from a cognitive standpoint? Objectively, it is hard other than when people, you actually do objective uh, mental status exams. And yes, you can find some evidence of of, of memory loss and uh, or especially short-term memory issues. But when you start um, looking at, at chemical, as, as Fred was saying, start looking at chemical markers and we're just not seeing them. Uh, let me move on to uh, the other part as our podcast has um, shifted uh, to the new and the next. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, new York Times had uh, an interesting piece. Are we prepared for the next pandemic? I don't want to go into that topic quite yet with you. But there are some things that uh, appear to be on the minds of leading uh, practitioners and physicians, in particular um, antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria, and there has been a fair amount of discussion about a, a, a fungus uh, that appears to be uh, cropping up more and more in hospitals, etc. Maybe you can shed some light on that. Um, yeah, I, I can talk a little about that. I, I actually uh, have been working to prevent the selection of high multi-resistant, antibiotic-resistant bacteria for my entire career. And it's very interesting that in uh, 1952, Max Finland, who was uh, a, a very famous infectious disease physician at Boston City Hospital, uh, he monitored the antibiotic sensitivities of all bacteria at Boston City Hospital during that period when penicillin came into, uh, was first released. And he noticed within three months that because the, all the doctors were using this uh, for anyone that had fever because it was a miracle drug, he noticed within three months the effectiveness of that antibiotic really uh, almost reached zero. And what he found is that the infections that patients were suffering from were all resistant to penicillin. And so at that point, he realized that we had to be much more cautious in the use of antibiotics. And for 20 years, he tried to train physicians to be very cautious in the use of antibiotics and only use them when there were clear bacterial infections. He concluded after 20 years he saw no change in, in uh, these responses and decided the only way that we could prevent the continued progression was to mandate uh, the restrict most antibiotics and only could be given by people who are experts in infectious diseases. And that has actually led to now antibiotic stewardship programs uh, in every hospital. That is, there are uh, pharmacists combined with infectious disease doctors that have res restrict certain broad-spectrum antibiotics, that is, antibiotics that kill most of the bacterial flora in your body, uh, they cannot be used without permission. Uh, one of the big problems that happened during COVID, and I think one of the reasons we're seeing the high incidence of 
which are called MDR or multi, uh, 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 see, multi, uh, drug, that's right, multi-drug resistant bacteria, MDR, is because about, we found that 50% of COVID patients, when they were admitted because they had fever, were given antibiotics, even though 99% of the time, no bacteria were ever cultured. And if you do this one test that indicates bacteria versus uh, viral called procalcitonin, it was always low, indicating the fever was only due to virus. So as a result of that, a lot of antibiotics were unnecessarily used. And so we're seeing now a higher level of MDR bacteria than we had before. And then the other big problem is uh, we're seeing this Canada cruzi, uh, which is a very, um, uh, is resistant to uh, the common oral antifungal agent that we use called the azoles, uh, fluconazole being the major one. And uh, so this has become a serious problem in hospitals, as is the MDR. They're mostly, we're seeing these in our hospitals right now. But a large part of the problem is on the, in the outpatient setting. Um, you know, you think about people, and I'm sure most people listen to this. You go to your doctor because you've got a fever and a bad cold and you want to get an antibiotic. And because most doctors uh, get you know, especially as they're more employed by systems, their their uh, reimbursement is eventually tied to their satisfaction scores that they get from patients. They don't like to say no to the patient that comes in asking for an antibiotic. So we have incentives that are incentivizing the overuse of antibiotic, and I'm I'm guilty of it myself. I know I am. Um, you want to keep people happy, and the way you keep them happy is not by saying, "No, I don't think this is bacterial." You know, go home and let's let's talk in a day or two, and we'll see how you're doing. Um, and we don't have enough testing capabilities to be able to clearly identify, especially the common outpatient illnesses. Um, so we are we do see huge overuse of antibiotics, um, and uh, Z packs. I'm looking at you. There, that you know, azithromycin just gets thrown at everything um, and it's it is a ongoing issue yeah bill that's a really good point and you know i i don't do a lot of outpatient but i understand that pressure it is a real pressure and we have to educate our patients that one of the things that we know is if you take an antibiotic for over three days the microbiota the floor of your entire bowel system is disrupted and so one of the ways you can convince patients that it's is harmful is to talk about their bowel flora and the microbiota and you're going to harm that and that leads to a feeling of uh, feeling sick and it's possible that some of these long covid syndromes may be the consequence of the antibiotics that were unnecessarily used who knows but i i think we have to try to make the argument when we're quite sure it's viral uh, that they do not need an antibiotic. Right now, fever equals antibiotic equals a bacterial infection. When we know probably 90% of those that present with fever in a clinic are due to viral illnesses rather than bacterial illnesses. And that's, I, in you know, my own practice, I like to, as much as possible, I use testing and try to show what it is. But yeah, it's 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 next to impossible to do routinely, um, and even if you do cultures on things, you know that's two to three days before you get a result back. And um, 
and, and then as our the ENT colleagues especially will tell us, even a lot of bacterial infections, sinuses and ears, if you just if you decongest them and let them drain, they'll probably clear the they'll more more likely than not clear the infection without antibiotics. So it's a uh, we definitely overuse them. We're all trained to overuse them, and when I say all, I mean both doctors and the public are trained to overuse antibiotics. So what I'm hearing from both of you is, uh, first of all, as a matter of one's own personal health. Um, the judicious use of antibiotics is important, and uh, notwithstanding the commercials. And Bill, you referenced ZPAC, um, just in case. I, I don't want people to get confused by the esoterica. It's a very common antibiotic that's uh, dispensed. I think it, what is it like? Azithromycin. Yeah, and it's what, six doses or something very easy to take or. I forget you. Yeah, two two pills one day, four pills, uh, one pill each day for the next four days, and people you know, always. I just need a pack. They'll take care of it. And the other thing is that some antibiotics have non antibiotic effects that are that are uh, helpful, such as azithromycin. That is also very good respiratory anti inflammatory, um, and so you may get better with it, but it had nothing to do with the antibiotic effect. Okay, and so. Uh no one, I'm not hearing you or Fred discouraging people to go to their doctors to discuss their illnesses. Just uh, think through with their physicians um, a, the judicious use of antibiotics. But what I'm also hearing from the case study that Fred cited to is that there, there's also a uh, broader consequence when antibiotics are used en masse in terms of the reduced efficacy of that antibiotic uh, for things that are needed. So this is both an individual issue and and more broadly a community health issue. Fred, Bill, is that a fair summary? Definitely. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Okay. All right. Uh, Anything that people should be particularly alarmed about or fearful of just in terms of this most recent fungus infection? Uh, or is it just something that you guys will continue to watch and keep us up to date about? No, but I think that the it's not something to be alarmed about, but I think this is a very good example of one of the uh, national treasure that we have is the CDC uh, epidemi- I might get the exact wording wrong, but epidemiologic information service. Um, they They're the ones who are charged with domestically and internationally is tracking the development of all of these uh, kinds of um, outbreaks and resistances, and it's a it's a truly great organization. Doesn't get enough funding or recognition, but it's it's a national treasure. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And and the good news is, within hospitals, doctors and administrators do listen to the CDC. Uh, unlike uh, the community right now, seems to. Uh, have ignored a lot of the CDC recommendations and a lot of politicians have. And that's been very unfortunate. And I hope the reputation of the CDC will return because uh, prior to the COVID uh, pandemic, the CDC was considered the ultimate and the highest level uh, organization with regards to epidemiology and data analysis in the world, and it was, it is, it is still a treasure, and I hope we can uh, 
the politicians will realize that and give it more funding, which it richly deserves. So a great uh, final point about uh, trust, hard-earned over many years, easily lost, and um, you know, hopefully the ability to keep politics out of, um, we'll call it the, the notion of public health. Um, so thank you both. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in a few weeks. It'd be great to approach the topic of um, our, have we actually absorbed the lessons and what are those lessons and are we better prepared? Um, so Bill, Fred, uh, please stay safe and thanks again for the time. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Thanks for listening.